I'm Maria Bartiromo. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Liz Clayman, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, April 2nd, 2020. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. There are growing questions about China's response to the virus and their numbers as the pandemic gets politicized around the world. We don't have our act together politically in the U.S. Our allies are not following us and the Chinese are actively undermining an effort to try to respond effectively. That is a very serious issue. I'm Dave Anthony. The coronavirus crisis has put the 2020 presidential race in neutral for who knows how long. We've had elections with a lot of turbulence, but we're going to have both turbulence and there's just so much we don't know. And in fact, even are you going to be able to physically campaign or is this going to be our first virtual election? And I'm Tammy Bruce. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. More and more reports are trickling out about China, questioning the number of people who have died and the country's response. As we know, the Chinese doctor who blew the whistle on the virus was punished, forced to sign documents saying he lied about it all before he himself died from COVID-19. Now, a Bloomberg report says a U.S. intelligence document concludes China intentionally left their numbers incomplete and provided fake numbers. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has been vocally critical of China, accusing it and other countries of avoiding responsibility and causing confusion about the virus origin. We've asked every country to step up, tell us what they know so that the world can learn. America will then turn around. We will share the information we get. And we'll keep people safe, not only here in the United States, but all across the world. President Trump was asked about China and their death toll Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Their numbers seem to be a little bit on the light side. And I'm being nice when I say that relative to what we witnessed and what was reported. China claims they had just over 82,000 cases and 3,300 deaths, as Italy and Spain have seen far more deaths. For that matter, the U.S. has as well. Now, China is one thing, but the World Health Organization is another. A reporter in Hong Kong tried to ask a World Health Organization official about Taiwan's response to the virus. But most of the world doesn't recognize Taiwan as China says Taiwan is part of their country. And Taiwan doesn't have membership at the WHO. The World Health Organization official would also not recognize Taiwan in the interview and hung up on the reporter when she asked about Taiwan's handling of the virus. So if there was ever a crisis you would want to be non-politicized, you'd want the whole world to come together and fight, it would be this one. And we are not doing that. Ian Bremmer is the CEO of the political risk consulting firm Eurasia Group. Uh, we're not even close. We're not we're not doing it well inside the country. We're not doing it well with our allies. And we're sure as hell not doing it well with the Chinese. Um, the World Health Organization, uh, the Chinese government did not allow them in in January and lied to them um, about human to human transfer. Uh, right. of, uh, of this virus. And yet the WHO has been carrying a lot of water for China because they want access and they want the funding. And there is a difference here. I mean, there's no moral equivalence. When the United States government, we may have our own propaganda, but we, we don't actually uh, tell uh, members of NGOs and INGOs, governmental, international governmental organizations, that if they don't carry water for the U.S., that that's it, it's over for them. The Chinese government does do that. Right. And the fact that there is no rule of law, you may know that the China, the Chinese recently kicked out all the journalists from the New York Times, right. who, by the way, have been given pretty sympathetic coverage to China. The Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, not only from China, but also from Hong Kong, 
and Macau. And it's against the basic law in Hong Kong for China to have that kind of influence. China doesn't care. Right. So that's a pretty big deal. Well, and I think it's also so important because officials in Taiwan are saying, look, we warned the WHO of human to human transmission in December. And yet two weeks later, we have this now sort of infamous tweet, January 14th, where the WHO tweets out that per China, no clear evidence of human transmission. I mean, That's right. That kind of disconnect, we're talking about people's health. We're talking about quantifying deaths and severe cases of a virus that is spreading. It just seems so illogical to ignore Taiwan's warnings when we're talking about a health-related issue, right? Not a political well, one. It's a, it, but it is a political issue because <laughs> Taiwan is not recognized as a government by China. Um, and I mean, the idea that suddenly, you know, you're saying, well, human lives shouldn't be caught up in politics. Human lives are caught up in politics all the time. Uh, if, if that wasn't the case, we would have a global response. We, we, we would have data sharing all over the world. We wouldn't have people competing for scarce resources in terms of masks and ventilators. There'd be one global market. We try to make sure that there was both humanitarian distribution mm -hmm. and also effective purchasing agreements. We don't have any of those things. You know, after 9-11 and after 2008, the United States took the lead. The allies followed us. The Russians and the Chinese followed us, too. In 2020, it's by far the biggest crisis. We don't have our act together politically in the U.S. Our allies are not following us. And the Chinese are actively undermining an effort to try to make to try to respond effectively. That is a very serious issue. Ian, I want to ask you about personal protective equipment and manufacturing. China, I mean, we know they make most of our equipment from ventilators to masks to latex gloves. What's your prediction uh, when this is over? Do we bring back that kind of manufacturing here en masse? Do we bring back other kind of manufacturing in here and sort of uh, stop relying on China? Is that the ultimate effect of this? We stop relying on China for, to make so much of our stuff? Oh, absolutely. There's going to be much less interdependence between the U.S. and China. That was already happening in technology. Huawei, 5G, Google and Facebook, of course, have no business model. They're not allowed in China. Hmm. Um, so I think that's going to happen clearly when you talk about medical supply chain and, and critical nodes of that. But even baseline manufacturing and services, a just-in-time supply chain is very, it's very efficient, but it's very dangerous in terms of disruptions. So you're going to have a lot of companies that are going to be reducing uh, that level of dependence on China. Chinese labor is more expensive than it used to be. We don't need as much labor, right? We can automate a lot more. Hmm. You're going to see companies pulling back. And if U.S. unemployment is 15 percent this summer, which is what Goldman Sachs came out with, right. a lot of companies uh, pushed by the Trump administration are going to have to become a little more patriotic in terms of who they hire. So you're going to see that, too. What, what have you, Ian, what have you been most troubled with? by the U.S. response and reaction, and what have you been most pleased with? Uh, I've been most pleased with how strongly um, the U.S. Uh, government has been able to come together around a fiscal response, as well as the monetary response we've seen from Jay Powell. Um, I mean, I've got to tell you, uh, Mnuchin and Nancy Pelosi uh, did a fantastic job in a very short period of time uh, putting together a $2 trillion package, 10% of U.S. GDP that touches pretty much every part of the U.S. economy. And if we need more, I suspect we're going to get more. And I think we will need more. And I don't think I don't think if it was Obama and a Republican House, you could have done any better. 
So I feel really good about that. I think that was a very effective response. It made the Americans, American economy much more likely to stand up this incredible shock. I'm most concerned about the abdication of the United States of leadership on the international stage. I'm most concerned when President Trump cuts off um, travel from Europe for non-citizens and permanent representatives and doesn't tell the European allies in advance, they hear about it on TV, and then they, they condemn us the next day. I mean, inconceivable something like that could have happened in a previous crisis. I'm most concerned about how the United States is providing virtually no humanitarian aid to poorer countries that desperately need it um, in response. I'm most concerned about how the Chinese, despite the fact that they are responsible for this crisis, are running laps around us in propaganda and public diplomacy with other countries because the United States just is not there internationally. And I think that, you know, that's really going to hurt us for a long time. I know a lot of Americans don't pay as much attention to the rest of the world, and especially not when they're hurting ourselves. But we need our government to do it uh, because we benefit from having a government that is taking a leadership role. And that is very far from where we are right now. Finally, Ian, everyone wants to talk about how this will change things forever. I think that's been sort of the underlying theme of our conversation. But I'm talking about the minutiae, humanity's, you know, daily lives. Um, you know, will more of us work from home? Please, God, for the sake of Los Angeles traffic, make that so. Or, you know, will we see more people like stockpiling, more gun owners, you know, more people knowing how to cook and not eating out as much? Uh, what do you, what's your sense? I mean, we got a lot of guns in this country. Uh, <laughs> unclear to me that stockpiling more is going to make much of a difference. Um, uh, but certainly in terms of cooking at home, I mean, you know, th there is no question we're going to restart the economy. But until we have a vaccine that works, um, people aren't going to be comfortable getting on a middle seat uh, and taking their kids to Disneyland, uh, you know, fly an economy. They're not going to feel comfortable going to a sporting arena with 50,000 people to watch some college football. They're not going to feel comfortable going out to a bar or a rock concert or their favorite local restaurant. Um, and so I think it's going to take a long time. And so, I mean, I, I think that a lot of there's a lot of business in the U.S. that's going to transform very dramatically. Wow. Um, anything else you want to touch on that, that we didn't now since I have your brain? <laughs> the most important thing that we haven't talked about is that um, the Americans, the Europeans, the rich countries, we have the money to respond to this crisis. It's gonna, it's gonna be a great hardship and obviously the worst hardship for those of us that lose our lives, um, but the economy will continue to function more or less the way it had over time. Um, developing countries need just as much support. They do not have it. They will not get it. Their healthcare systems won't work and they can't do social distancing because they have communal um, sanitation in many cases um, and, uh, and other oh, right. facilities and they don't have the privacy. Uh, and, and I mean, the answer for these countries, for many of them will be herd immunity, which is everybody gets it. And hopefully not too many die because they're young populations. That is a very serious problem. And, uh, it's going to be a while before we get through that. It does sound based on what you, you said just previously, it does sound that you, you think the recession, this recessionary impact we're experiencing might might last a while. If people don't want to go out to bars and restaurants and they don't feel comfortable, um, we could be in for, a, a, it sounds like in your opinion, a, sort of a longer recovery. 
yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't think you're going to see the U.S. economy fully recovered um, until sometime 2021, and and I, I think that means uh, even though you could see a pop in growth um, because it's hit because it's taken such a hit, that doesn't mean we're back to normal running. Keep in mind, you're talking about global supply and demand that has been basically severed. And all that means is that the U.S. is going to need to spend a lot more money, and our debt is going to go through the roof uh, this year, next year. But that doesn't change the the value of the U.S. dollar as global reserve currency, in my view, especially because the Europeans are going to be in an we- even weaker position coming out of this. But so, I mean, we are going to have to spend more. This two trillion isn't close to the end of it, but we'll do that, um, and I think we'll get through it. I, I, more, I worry a lot more about the poorer economies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow, Ian Bremmer, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. This is Tammy Bruce with your Fox News commentary coming up. The race for president has slowed to a crawl. No rallies, no primaries, with much of America shut down over the coronavirus. But President Trump remains in the spotlights. It's going to be a very painful, very, very painful two weeks. He and his White House task force are on TV every day. Our strength will be tested and our endurance will be tried. But America will answer with love and courage and ironclad resolve. But Joe Biden is critical of the response. The Democrat keeps doing interviews from his home saying the president didn't move fast enough. So we're behind the eight ball. And it's all about the president asking governors to thank him, to which Biden says, come on. Prompting Trump counselor Kellyanne Conway to tell Fox and Friends he's... Out there criticizing instead of saying, hey, here's what we did. Uh, that we thought was effective. Why doesn't Vice President Biden call the White House today and offer some support? Hours later, Biden did offer to call President Trump to discuss coronavirus strategy. Hard to fathom in very unusual times. David Pluff was Barack Obama's 2008 campaign manager and then advisor. He's also written two new books, including A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. Now, we talked to David Pluff before Biden's offer to talk to the president. In campaigns, the one thing you desire above all else is certainty if you're running a campaign. David Pluff was Barack Obama's 2008 campaign manager, then advisor. He's also written two new books, including A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. It may be the most uncertain presidential campaign um, we've ever had in the country. Wow. I mean, we're, that's that's saying a lot because we go back, you know, all the way to the founding of this nation. And there have been crises and presidential elections that occurred. Abraham Lincoln had to go through a reelection in 1864. Yes. Well, we had 1864. We obviously had both the 1940 race, which was a critical race uh, right before World War II in terms of our involvement in 1944 during the war. But, you know, we don't know if we're going to be living in a pandemic in the fall. We don't know if the economic Uh, impact is going to be at depression level, recession level, how long it's going to last. So, yes, 1864, 1944, 1968, we've had elections with a lot of turbulence, but we're going to have both turbulence and there's just so much we don't know. And in fact, even are you going to be able to physically campaign or is this going to be our first virtual election? Yeah. and, And that is interesting when you look at there is someone, a candidate, who's on TV every day dealing with the coronavirus response. And that, I guess, could be a double-edged sword for President Trump, right? Right. I mean, he's trying to turn it into his, you know, version of his rallies, and he's getting big audience. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I mean, as as each day 
um, transpires in April and as we lead into May, you know, the death toll rising, um, the number of cases rising, the number of unemployed rising, the number of businesses shuttering, you know, you can't blame Trump for the crisis, but I do think there's going to be more and more attention paid to our preparation and lack of preparation. So um, at the end of the day, he gets the audience every day, but he also may remind people every day, particularly as we get deeper in April, that, you know, he downplayed this. There's a bunch of mistakes he made. So um, I think it is a double-edged sword. I think you put it really, pretty, really well. But at the same time, you have to be careful when you're Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders attacking the president and injecting politics into a time in which a lot of people are not interested in politics. Right. I'd say a couple things. So one, um, I think there are boundaries. So, you know, I but but I'd say so you do have to be careful. You know, you can't have, you know, sort of the stereotypical creepy negative ad on TV. But one, Trump, you know, practices politics every day from the podium. Trump, in a way, opens up more criticism of his performance because of the way he performs every day. Um, but yeah, I think for, if you're Biden and listen, Biden's the nominee, our primary is over statistically. So I, I think what's going to be interesting for Biden is, you know, yes, you want to talk to the country about what we need to do right now in the middle of the crisis. But I think increasingly people are going to be paying attention to how do we dig out of this economic hole? Are we ready for the next pandemic? And I think that's an opportunity for Biden to say, if I get elected president, here's what I'll be doing. Because whether it's Trump who gets reelected or Biden in his first term, their first term is going to be defined, particularly the first couple of years, by the economic overhang of this pandemic. You know, that's something that you know very well, because in 2008, we were in an economic crisis. Barack Obama was elected. And that was the first thing. And the only thing he had to deal with was trying to figure out what to do. Right. So, you know, he was still able to pass health care and Wall Street reform and some other things. But, yeah, that that defined his first term. So I and I think Trump does the disservice by trying to suggest that the economy is just going to snap back. I mean, you talk to any business leader, you look at what any economist is saying, this is not going to be a V-shaped situation where we go down super fast and deep and we come back up equally fast. And so I think that um, again, if Trump wins re-election, 2021, 2022, maybe even 2023 is defined by digging out of a really deep economic hole and the same thing for Biden. So that's exactly right. The, the main issue for our next president, we already know what it's going to be because this economic hole is going to be – I mean, you know, we may see unemployment rates, you know, into the 20s, certainly into the mid to high teens, which is much higher than we even saw back in 08 or 09. Now, that – in a traditional political sense, would be a killer for an incumbent president to have to try to be reelected during a terrible economic time. So that seems on the face to give Joe Biden an advantage. Do, do you think that's true? So, yeah, you look at the economic situation and say, how can incumbent win in that? But, uh, you know, no one's blaming Trump for the pandemic, number one. I think if you can uh, lay his crisis response at his feet and connect that to the economy, I do think that's some headwinds he's got to run into. But almost no matter what it happens, you know, can Donald Trump win Wisconsin? Can he win Michigan? Can he win Pennsylvania? Can he win Florida? Sure, because his base is so solid. And I think he's going to turn out voters almost at a historical level on his behalf. So that makes him very dangerous if you're Joe Biden. You had mentioned that laying the response at his feet. One of the things that he and the Republicans used to counter this is that when the president said no more people coming from China and put a ban on it, Joe Biden and others were critical that that wasn't the right thing to do. So 
both can argue back and forth on that, correct? Well, I think I think history will show that was the right decision. But, you know, saying we're at 15 cases will go down to zero, um, you know, uh, basically continually downplaying this, getting rid of the pandemic office, mishandling the testing. I mean, you know, you go on and on and on and on. And so. So, yeah, listen, I do think you're going to see pretty soon Trump's campaign running ads on television and on um, digital platforms basically doing hero worship ads. He closed the border. You know, he's the one that's got the five-minute test. I mean, they're going to be doing advertising. Well, isn't, so, that, you know, isn't you, that, I mean, to be fair, though, those things are true. He did do that with China. He did with getting the FDA to quickly approve tests and different ways and a public-private partnership. He did help to increase the amount of testing because apparently the government wasn't well set up to deal with something to, to this size. Again, um, I think the, the, the cardinal sin here, the original sin, was not taking the threat as seriously as you needed to take it. Now we're playing catch-up. David Pluff just said the Democratic race is over. That's not technically true. Bernie Sanders is still running and says there is a path for him to be the nominee, admittedly a narrow one. But the senator also maintains if he's not, he'll do everything he can to see that Joe Biden is elected president. There is no path. So, you know, my guess is they're waiting to see uh, ultimately what the final calendar looks like. So, as, as you know, a lot of states are now pushing their primaries from April and May into June. Um, but no, I mean, Joe Biden's got an over 300 uh, uh, delegate lead. And in our proportional system, that might as well be 3,000. So there's no way for Bernie Sanders to make up the gap. So I'm not sure at this point what he's doing in, in, unless he's trying to figure out, OK, what what is my exit strategy? Um, you know, are there some concessions I can get in the Democratic platform? Um, can I get some of my staff hired in the Biden campaign? All those are fair things to do. But, you know, Joe Biden needs to move uh, to the general election. If I were the Biden campaign, I would spend 100 percent of my time, 100 percent of my resources, 100 percent of my mind share on the general election. A problem for Joe Biden if we can't get out there and he can't do rallies and he can't have campaign events, he's stuck at home and he seems like he's distant. The president of the White House dealing with this response every day. How difficult is it for Joe Biden right now? You know, it is a disadvantage for Biden, but there's nothing he can do about it. He's not in office. He's not a governor. Uh, he's not the president. And and truthfully, um, you know, Andrew Cuomo, Gavin Newsom, Mike DeWine, Donald Trump, you know, Citizens want to hear from those folks because they're the folks making decisions. So all Biden can do, I think, is, you know, leverage interviews, but also, you know, leverage social media every day. So what's your plan every day to communicate how you would handle this crisis? And the most high profile Democrat in the country is one you referenced, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York. And there have been people talking about what, how do we get him on uh, as the Democratic nominee? Yeah, well, he didn't run. So, you know, our, the Democratic nominee is Joe Biden. No, no way around it. So but, you know, Cuomo, I think, is interesting because you think about before the coronavirus, would Andrew Cuomo be somebody you would think would be a good surrogate in places like Wisconsin or Pennsylvania even or Michigan? Probably not. Right. Or people don't really know him. Right. Now he's going to be almost universally known. So for him to be in those states in the fall saying, let me tell you why I need Joe Biden in the White House. He'll be my partner in crisis and rebuilding the economy. That's going to be pretty powerful, actually. As we get into the summer, do you think we're going to have conventions? I don't know. So, I mean, I think if I was the Democratic Party, um, I would definitely think about 
uh, a scenario that moves it back. You know, they're in July, early July or mid-July. Republicans are late in August. So one, can you move it back? And I don't know. So I think both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have to do scenario planning here. One is a traditional convention in person, four nights. The other is a virtual convention. Uh, listen, the same thing's going to be true for the election. You have to prepare to run an election in the fall um, that may be all mail-in. Will we have presidential debates? We can have them in a studio, So, so, but Trump's saying he may not debate. So if you're Joe Biden, you need to have a, a plan for a fall election with debates and a fall election without debates. So, that would be weird um, if there was no debate at all. I mean, I, I mean, I know that there's typically three. In 1980, they barely had one, and it was very late at the end. But typically, debates are just part of the deal, right? They are. I mean, Trump's saying he may not debate. I think that's all a negotiating posture to try and get, you know, a few moderators he likes. Plus, Trump, as we know, the one thing he he cannot abide is not being in the spotlight and to be accused of being weak. So I think he's going to debate for that reason because Joe Biden would be like, you know, Joe uh, Trump's oh, yeah. scared of me. He yeah, won't you're debate afraid. Me. Like, you're afraid. I, what are you afraid right. of? Right. So Trump's – I'd be shocked if he doesn't debate, but if you're, but you have to do the responsible thing if you're the Biden campaign. Your opponent's saying you may not debate. So those are three big moments, and if Trump doesn't debate, you don't have them. And President Trump, love him or hate him, he has a lot of energy, and he doesn't stop, and he might do three or four rallies a day as you get into October. Can Joe Biden keep up with that? He's going to have to. And, you know, J J Donald Trump's supporters are enthusiastic. I think there's so much press coverage of how motivated Democrats are to be Trump, and that's important. But, you know, Trump's base is just as motivated if, and more right now um, to see him seek a second term and, and win a second term. So that's a big, big, big concern. And, and I think there's a sleeping giant out there in states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. There's a lot of people who look just like Trump's base who either weren't registered or didn't vote in, in 16. And the Trump campaign campaign is finding them. So he's going to turn out, you know, 10 percent, uh, maybe 15 percent more vote than he did last time. And so the high watermark, his high watermark is is very high. And the Democrats are going to have to put a lot of vote on the table to beat him. David Bluff, two books, A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump, also Ripples of Hope, your guide to electing a new president. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Download Fox News Channel's The Five podcast for free. Five of your favorite Fox News personalities discuss current issues in a roundtable discussion. Get it now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and foxnewspodcasts.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tammy Bruce. What's on your mind? Well, we are not going to parties or gathering with large groups. We are getting to know who our neighbors are. And those, by the painful side of their businesses being temporarily closed, who make our neighborhoods bustling places of business and socializing. As we hunker in front of the computers or our smartphones, we are meeting other people who are having a tremendous impact on our lives now. People whom we never would have really known in any other circumstance. Dr. Deborah Burks, a key member of President Trump's coronavirus task force, is one of those people. She has become a person who people look forward to hearing from every day during our, the briefings on our continuing fight against COVID-19, the disease caused by the new coronavirus. 
And yet she has been a hero prior to this. Her extraordinary resume tells us of her commitment to the country, but also to saving lives. The 63-year-old mother of two is a board-certified physician specializing in internal medicine, allergy and immunology, and diagnostic and clinical laboratory immunology, according to her biography at the State Department. Her bona fides are clear, as is her standing as an example of a woman who is her own person. Not surprisingly, despite the fact that she has devoted her adult life to saving lives, primarily anonymously versus so many who pursue a public-facing career, the legacy media and the left in general have decided that Dr. Burks is no longer in favor and must be mocked and marginalized. Why is this? Because she gets along with Mr. Trump and has dared to occasionally praise him and his work. Dr. Burks is the latest example of someone who has committed the crime of working well with the president and contributing to the success of his work, which is a vision focused on getting this nation back on its feet. Despite this being a time of crisis for the nation, the New York Times is reliably trying to set the usual divisive and caustic tone so preferred by the left. In a recent article, it offers up a melange of gossip, sniping, and whining implying that Dr. Burks has succumbed to some sort of mind control unleashed by Donald Trump, rendering her weak and untrustworthy. The tweets of Maggie Haberman, one of the two reporters on the article, makes clear the bias and intention of the piece. Promoting it, she wrote, quote, an astute Trump advisor once described the president as turning people. So they start to adopt his views. In a binary, Trump sees as him versus media, Some fear Dr. Deborah Burks is the latest example. As opinion writer Stephen Miller noted on Twitter about the Times smear of Dr. Burks, quote, the New York Times is actually running a piece that a woman with an MD, BS, rose to the rank of colonel in the U.S. Army, was Barack Obama's World AIDS Coordinator, was awarded the Meritorious Service Medal and the Legion of Merit, has been brainwashed and hypnotized by Donald Trump. There have been attempts to pit Dr. Anthony Fauci, also a lead on the coronavirus team, against the president. What you don't see or hear are suggestions that he doesn't know what he's doing or is not in control of the choices he makes. No, that denigration is reserved by liberals for the woman on the team who is enjoying the respect of Americans and the president. The good news is Dr. Burks and other Americans who have committed themselves to the health and well-being of this nation remain steadfast and focused on her work. Getting to know her and all the heroes who continue to work securing our future has been inspiring. While the small-minded and cynical choose to attack those who are helping because it might make Mr. Trump look good, Americans across the board recognize what really matters in this time of pandemic, and it's about coming together and lifting everyone up. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. It's the latest from Fox News Podcasts, the campaign with Brett Baer. With updates from reporters on the trail and in-studio experts, Brett keeps you informed on the 2020 race. Go to foxnewspodcasts.com and download the campaign with Brett Baer now. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.